0: Amen and amen. How are we doing, church? Good, good, good. We are wrapping up our study of 1 Samuel. It has been an 11-week journey, and we are here. We have made it to the, it's kind of sad at the same time, because we made it to the end of the summer. But at the same token, that means new beginning school has started, and we're excited for what is ahead this fall. And so grab your Bibles as we wrap up today. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 28. And as you turn there, let me tell you about a couple of exciting things that are happening in the life of fcc Right now, tonight, yes, tonight, we have our annual River Baptism, and let me just tell you, we got over 50 people who are going through the waters of baptism. Can we give the Lord some praise for that? I mean, come on. 50 people going through the waters of baptism, 15 of them are from our campus, and so if you do not have plans this afternoon... Be at Green Hill Park. It is going to be happening from 3 to 6. It's a festival, and so about an hour in, we are going to be rocking into some baptisms. And so if you don't want to come to the festival, which I don't know why you wouldn't want to come to a festival, but if you don't want to come to the festival, meet us at 4 o'clock. Come see many, many, many lives who have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Also, right now, in a room that's about right there, library upstairs, there are over 20 individuals who are a part of our campus who are taking the Next Steps class. Amen? Amen. 20 people who want to learn more about FCC, want to take next steps in their spiritual journey. And so the Lord is doing something, and we're praising God for the lay leaders who are up there leading those individuals right now. All right, let's dive in, and let's see what the Lord has for us today. We're going to be talking about Saul, and as he is searching, what we're going to find is that he's been searching, as the title of the message says, searching for answers in all the wrong places. You see, Saul has made a lot of really poor choices in his life. And if you've been with us throughout the study of 1 Samuel, you've seen a lot of those poor choices, but the decision that he's going to make today is particularly bad. And so as we come to chapter 28, we're going to see that instead of seeking God in a time of crisis, when he's nervous about something that's about to happen in his life, instead of seeking after God, Saul chooses to bypass God, and he goes and visits essentially a witch. It's called the witch of Endor, the medium of Endor. It's pretty gruesome topic, right? Hey. And what we're going to see today is that when Saul chooses to bypass God, it leads him into a terrible place. In fact, it leads him to a place where he loses the blessings of God. And so this morning, as a church, our job this morning is to learn from Saul's mistakes. That's what we want to do. We want to learn from his mistakes so that we don't end up bypassing God in our own lives and make the same mistakes and fall into the same traps that Saul has fallen to throughout this book. And so with that in mind, let's dive in and let's consider what or how the book of 1 Samuel is going to end and determine what, how this actual book, how the closing of this book today can apply directly to you and I's life. Diving in, 1 Samuel chapter 28, we're going to pick up in verse 3. It says this, it says, Now Samuel." He had died. Now, if you don't know who Samuel is, Samuel was the great prophet of God all the way back in chapter 1 who was born miraculously to Hannah. And we've seen him all throughout the book. He's done some pretty awesome things throughout the book. He was the one that anointed Saul to begin with. And so at the beginning of chapter 28, we can see that Samuel has passed away and all of Israel had mourned for him and buried him at Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums, that's people, if you don't know who those are, people who communicate with the spirits, okay? So he put the mediums and the necromancers, which are people who communicate with the dead, he had put these people out of the land. And so right out of the gate, Saul's done a good thing here. That's what I want you to hear at the start of this chapter, putting the necromancers, putting the mediums. He essentially, what he had done is he had rid the land of demon worship. Now, that's a good thing. In fact, God had said in his law back in the book of Leviticus that these kind of practices were not allowed in his land and they were not to be tolerated at all. And so Saul, in obedience to God, don't miss that, in obedience to God, had essentially rid the land, in verse 3, of demon worship. Verse 4, and the Philistines, they assembled and came and encamped in Shunem. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid. When he saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. Now, if you've been joining us throughout this sermon series, you probably have noticed that fear and insecurity seem to be recurring things that are happening in Saul's life. Like ever since, back in chapter 15, ever since Saul lost the assurance of God's protection, he's been fearful of everything. He's feared the future, fear of death fear of someone else like David who was going to succeed and threaten his kingdom. He's fearful of what everyone else thought about him. And church, fear and jealousy, what that does in our lives, they are typically the first indicator lights that go off and they warn us that we are out of fellowship with God. That's what it does. And warn us that we're out of fellowship with God. You see, when you're fully surrendered, when your life is totally and fully surrendered over to him, you have confidence in the fact that God is going to meet every single one of your needs. Like when you're surrendered to God, you'll worry less about what everyone else thinks. Why? Because you're confident that the only one whose opinion actually matters already has approval of you. And so you don't worry about what everybody else thinks. Like when you're surrendered to God, you're going to worry less about tragedies that may come in, hardships that may come in your way. Why? Because you know that not one hair falls from your head that Jesus doesn't already have knowledge of. But listen, what happens is, this is what's happening in Saul's life, when you strip yourself of those assurances, and when you try to go out and do this thing called life on your own, you end up living with fear. And you end up living with jealousy. Why? Why? Because everything now, it doesn't rest on God. Everything now is resting on you. Church, this is what's happening in Saul's life. Fear was causing him to rely on himself instead of simply just relying on God. And what's happened is, at this point in Saul's life, his fear, point number one this morning, is that fear is making him desperate. And that's what fear does in our lives. It makes us desperate. And so let's see what Saul's desperation actually leads him to do. Verse 6, And when Saul inquired the Lord, and so he's going to call out to the Lord, he's going to cry out to the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him. He didn't answer him by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Now, understand in verse 6, when it references dream, Urim, and prophets, these were the three primary ways that God spoke to his people back in that day. And while dreams and while prophets is probably really a familiar thing in your mind, some of you are sitting here looking at me like, Urim, like did he just say, never mind, did he say, you know what I'm saying? Like what is he talking about right here? Well, Urim is actually the Old Testament equivalent in my mind of like the magic eight ball. Okay, and so picture this magic eight ball, except the difference was it was divinely ordained in Exodus as a way of discerning what God's will was in your life. In fact, most scholars say that Urim was basically two rocks. One was called Urim, one was called Thumum, And on one side of the rock was written yes, and on the other side, if you flipped it over, it was actually written the word "no." And so when people needed direction in life, the priest would do this. He would take the rocks and he would throw them down on the ground. And there were four options that could come up. You think about it, just a simple math equation. When you throw four rocks on the ground with something, or two rocks on the ground, with something written on each side, there's four options that could come up. Option number one is it would say, yes, yes. And what that essentially meant was, hey, God is ordaining this, you go for it. You throw it down again, it might say, no, no. And what that essentially means is, don't even think about going for it. God is not ordaining this in your life. And finally, the last two options are yes, no, or no, yes. And what that essentially meant was there's no clear direction of what God is leading in this particular area of your life. Now, scholars say that in Saul's case, what was probably happening in this passage was the priest would throw down the rocks and he would get yes, no. And he would do it again, he would get no, yes. And yes, no, no, yes, yes, no, no, yes. And it would just keep not giving a clear direction. This would be like if you took a magic eight ball today and you started shaking it over and over and over and all it kept telling you was, ask it again later, ask again later, ask again later. You're like, what do you want me to do, right? You just no clear direction. And if that happened to you, like if you shook that magic eight ball 100 times and it said, ask me again later 100 times, you'd probably think you were going mad, right? Or something's wrong with that magic eight ball. Listen, that's what's happening in Saul's life. God was supernaturally not giving Saul an answer. Now, let me say this before we move on. Today, this afternoon, if you go home and you go into your backyard and you find two rocks and you start writing yes and no on the back of them, and you start rolling the dice in that way, thinking that somehow God's going to supernaturally uh, guide your life in that direction, please, by all means, do not do that, all right? God is not going to supernaturally do that in your life. That is an Old Testament thing, an Old Testament provision that did not carry over to the New Testament. And so don't think God's will for your life is going to be determined by a couple of smooth stones in your backyard, right? What do we have now? We have the Holy Spirit, right? We have the Holy Spirit of God that leads, guides, and directs our hearts. And so when you become a believer of him, he enters into your heart, and that is now in the New Testament how we are led, guided, and directed by the Spirit. Verse 7 goes on to say this, Then Saul said to his servants, said, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, a.k.a. a witch. And let me remind you, just four verses later, these are the same people that Saul had led the land of, Okay. And so verse 7 Saul said to the servant seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And the servant said to him behold there is a medium at Endor. Verse 8 so Saul disguises himself. He puts on other garments and he went he and two men with him. And they came up to the woman by night And he said, divine for me by his spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman, not recognizing that Saul was standing in a costume right in front of her face, the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? Church, what kind of witch is this? Like, think about this just for a moment. This woman supposedly can see the future, right? She can see what he is supposed to do, but she can't even see through the costume of the man that is standing right in front of her. I mean, if you remember in the scriptures, the scriptures say that Saul stood, what? Head and shoulders above everyone else in the land, and yet this woman, this witch, this medium, can't even tell that this is Saul standing right in front of him. But nonetheless, even though she doesn't recognize Saul, she still has this fear in her mind. Right, And so Saul, in verse 10, he's going to have to assure her that everything's going to be okay. He says this, And so Saul swore to her by the Lord. Check that out. Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come on you, this thing. Point number two this morning is this. Desperation in life can make us compromise. Church, when we get to a place where we are desperate for an answer, When we are fearful and we're running scared, we begin to compromise all different sorts of areas within our life. Saul, in this passage, he's already compromised two things that are really clear. He's compromised his identity. Think about it. He's disguised himself as a commoner, and he's sneaking around at night seeking answers from a witch, which, by the way, is the second thing he's compromised. He's compromised his convictions. He's the one that rid the land of all of the demon worship to begin with, and after he sought God, what does he do? He doesn't hear an answer from God, and so instead he compromises his convictions and he consults a medium for advice. Church, Saul has associated himself in this passage with people who are connected to the most ungodly people that they are, and now he himself is seeking wisdom and guidance from a witch, in a sense. Church, Saul's life at this moment is falling farther and farther and farther away from the Lord. And by the way, don't miss what's happening in verse 10. This is heavy stuff. In verse 10, we see that there is no limit to Saul's desperation. In fact, he's actually trumping God's authority in his life. Do you see that? In verse 10, he is trumping God's authority. Saul's essentially looking at this witch, square in the eyes, middle of the night, right? He's looking at her and he's saying, look, I know God says you should be put to death for doing these kinds of things, but I guarantee your protection. Not God does, I guarantee your protection. And so you have nothing to worry about, madam. My friends, when we get to a place in our life where we are trumping God's authority in our lives, it is a dangerous, dangerous place to be goes on, verse 11. Then the woman said, who shall I bring for you? And Saul said, bring up Samuel for me. Which, by the way, I don't know if you've been following us in the series, but Samuel is probably not the best choice of people during, to, to bring up during a satanic ritual. Like, do you just remember back in chapter 15, Samuel's the one that hacked King Agag to pieces, right? He hacks God's enemies to pieces, and here he is bringing Samuel out. He's bringing fire and brimstone Samuel out. Probably, if I'm I'm Saul right here, probably wouldn't be my first choice. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not bringing out fire and brimstone Saul. But nonetheless, Saul says, bring up Samuel, right? Bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, this is just comical to me, she she just cries out in a loud voice. She's like, "Ha!" Right? She just doesn't know what's happening. You see, I don't think this witch, just picture this, I don't think she has any idea or any thought this is actually going to work. I think she's a complete fraud in this whole case. And so she's sitting there and she's probably thinking, normally I just, you know, blow some smoke away, turn some India music on, move around this little Ouija board a little bit, and literally people believe what I'm going to say. Like I just make stuff up and we just go with it. However, this time, I picture her just kind of sitting in the back room with Saul. She's just, like, caressing her little crystal ball or whatever they do back in the day. Like, they're just caressing this thing. And all of a sudden, she just sees this person, like, coming up, whatever that looked like. And she's like, ah, what's happening right here? This is actually working. Like, church, she didn't actually believe this thing was actually going to work. And so this woman, verse 12, she sees Samuel. She cries out, ah, with his loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Way to go, genius, just now figuring this thing out. Like, cue the music. I can see clearly now that you are Saul, right? That's what's going on right here. That's essentially what's happening right here. You are Saul, verse 13. And Saul said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. I don't know what that looked like, but what a crazy word picture that paints in our mind. Verse 14, and Saul said to her, What is his appearance? And the medium said, an old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground, and he paid homage. Pause right there. You know, verse 14, it shows us discreetly a major problem in Saul's life. Write this down. Because people today, we can fall into the same trap if we're not careful. And so I want to show it to you. Saul's problem is that he has always shown more respect and concern for Samuel, God's prophet, than he did for God himself. See that? Shows more respect for Samuel than he did for God himself. And sometimes, if we're not careful, and sometimes people in today's culture, we can show more respect for a particular pastor for a famous person or for another individual in our family than we actually do for the Lord. Listen to me very carefully. There will be times, church, that this church, this gathering of people, this Southwest campus will not be perfect. You know why? Why? Because I'm the pastor, right? That's just it. And the reality is, by being totally transparent this morning, I make the mistakes all the time. Ask my wife, right? Just ask her. Don't ask her the details, but just ask her. I mean, all night last night, I was making all kinds of mistakes. I just was. And so the reality is, This church, myself, as your pastor, we are not going to be perfect. And so the reality is, you as an individual, as a congregant here today, you cannot build your your, your actual faith on a specific church. You cannot build your faith on a specific pastor. Why? Because we are all imperfect people. All of us in the room, we're imperfect people who make mistakes, who hurt each other's feelings from time to time. Right? We will let you down from time to time. I will let you down from time to time, and I apologize in advance for when it happens. And so instead of doing this, instead of trying to build your faith on a person or on a pastor, or on a worship leader, instead of trying to build your faith on a particular church, build your faith on the only one who will never let you, let you down. And his name is Jesus Christ, church. Build your life on him. Build your foundation on God himself because he is the only perfect one. He will never let you down and he promises to never leave you and to never, ever leave forsake you verse 15 then samuel said to saul why have you disturbed me by bringing me up and saul answered i'm in great distress for the philistines are warring against me and god has turned away from me and answers me no more either by prophets or by dreams therefore i have summoned you to tell me what i shall do and Saul and samuel said verse 16 why then do you ask me Since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. In other words, Samuel is basically saying, let me get this straight, Saul. Let me get this straight. God has turned himself away from you, so now you're coming to me for advice? Like, God himself is your enemy, and rather than reconciling, rather than getting right with God, you're hoping that I can do you a favor? Right? And Samuel continues, verse 17, the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and he has given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Now, you might remember, if you've been joining us throughout the summer, you might remember this story from back in chapter 15. If you weren't there, back in chapter 15, God had told Saul to completely wipe out the Amalekites. He said, this is not about you. This is about me executing righteous judgment on this group of people. And so he instructed him, don't take any spoils at all. Well, what did Saul do? He disobeyed God, right? Yes, he went and he attacked the Amalekites. Yes, he overtook the Amalekites, but he kept the king, King Agag, as a trophy and he kept some of the spoils and retained them as well and he tried to convince God later on he tried to convince Samuel later on that he was going to take those spoils and sacrifice them to the Lord. Well, as the story went, the result of that uh, of Saul's disobedience was God rejecting Saul as king. And listen, when that happened, when Saul got rejected as king, yes, he was sad about it. Yes, he was disappointed and frustrated, but the reality was Saul at that moment in his life He never truly repented for his disobedience. And so if you take that story back in chapter 15 and bring it into the story from today, we discover that Saul's, watch this, Saul's initial lack of repentance 13 chapters ago, many years ago, his initial lack of repentance is the reason why he's not hearing from the Lord still today. Isn't that interesting? Samuel continues, verse 19. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistine, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me, and the Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Church, this is the last message you want to hear from a ghost. Can we just be real clear? You don't want to hear a ghost come to you, look you in the eyes, and basically say, hey, tomorrow you and your family, you're going to be with me. You know what that means? You're going to be dead. That's what the message was. That's what Saul is hearing right there. And his response was he fell face forward to the ground, full length, filled with fear once again because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had not eaten anything all day and all night. It's brutal. A brutal message. Now, I don't want to just stop right there. I want to actually show you the end, of Sam, or excuse me, the end of Saul's life. And so grab your Bibles, flip a couple pages forward, go to chapter 31. I want to show you what happens at the end of Saul's life. But as you're turning there, it's not going to take you long, so as you're turning there, let me t- pause for a second and point out something to you that's vitally important from the text. And I don't want us to just breeze over it and miss it, so let's sit in this for a second. You see, Saul has continued to fall further and further away from God ever since, like we said a moment ago, that initial act of disobedience back in chapter 15. And the reality is, all Saul needed to do was come to God on his terms and repent. He just needed to turn around, turn away from his wicked ways and pursue Jesus, Put full, not Jesus, put, pursue God and put full faith and trust in him. But The truth is, he never did that in his life. And so because of that, now that we get to chapter 28, we see Saul crying out to God. But here's what I want you to see. When he cries out to God, he wasn't crying out to God for God. Write that down. He wasn't crying out to God for God. Instead, he was crying out to God to get him out of a jam. See that? He didn't just want God. He wanted God to fix his problems, and that was it. He wants God to save him from the Philistines and so instead of coming to God on God's terms and instead of surrendering his will for his life to God's will for his life Saul's trying to use God to get him out of a jam and listen the truth is in many of our lives if we're not careful we can be guilty of doing the exact same thing we can try to use God just simply as a means to fix our problems for instance There are times when we wait until a crisis comes into our lives, and then it's at that point we begin to pray and call out to him. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you shouldn't seek God in a crisis. I'm not sh- saying that when you get in a jam or when you face the difficulty at work or in your family life or whatever it may be, I'm not saying that you shouldn't seek God. You absolutely should seek God in a crisis and when you find yourself in a tough situation. But uh, what I am saying is you need to ask yourself a reflective question and say, why am I seeking God at this moment? Why am I truly seeking him? Are you just trying to use God at that moment to get you out of the problem and the jam that you're in And then as soon as you get out of that problem, guess what you're going to do? You're going to go back to the exact same way you were living before, or are you actually realizing in that moment that God is truly who he says that he is, and that he truly is the only one that we should ever trust, serve, and surrender to in life? In other words, are you only seeking God when you have a problem in life, or are you seeking him every single day and desiring to truly know him personally? Listen, in our relationship with Christ, it shouldn't be all about getting things from him. Yes, that's a piece of it. You see that. We're going to see that next week. Right? In the Lord's Prayer, it says, give us this day our daily bread. And so absolutely, we're supposed to ask God for things, but it shouldn't be all about getting things from him. Instead, it should be about knowing him. Right? Learning about him, growing in him, seeking him in a more intimate way. Now, as I said, we're going to talk about that more next week. Next week, we're going to sit in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. I thought it was the perfect thing to celebrate our 10-year anniversary, talk about how we need to just pray to the Lord for the future of what's to come. But for today, let's transition. Let's get back into 1 Samuel chapter 31, and let's see how Saul's life comes to an end. 1 Samuel chapter 31, pick it up, verse 1. Now, the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain at Mount Goboah just as Samuel had said and the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua the sons of Saul church Saul is literally watching his army fall apart he's literally standing there when all of his sons die right before his eyes including the godly man of Jonathan parents Listen to me carefully, because this right here, Saul's life, Saul's disobedience is a reminder that your children will suffer for the mistakes that you make in this life. They absolutely will. That's a sobering truth that is taught all throughout the scriptures, right? And so while you might be thinking in your mind sometimes that my choices affect no one but me, man, that's simply not true. It's not true. What you do affects the lives and the eternities of many different people who are connected to you. We see this in here. His entire army is crushed. They're struck down. His sons are killed. And so what you do has a direct effect on the other people in your life, family members and non-family members. Verse three, the battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him. And he was badly wounded by the archers. And Saul said to the armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through it. Lest these uncircumcised, these Philistines come and thrust me through and mistreat me. Church, to the very, very end, what is Saul still worried about? He's worried about what everybody else thinks of him. He's not worried about the fact that God is his enemy and God has left him. He's still just worried about what he looks like in front of other people. It goes on to say, but his armor bearer would not. For he feared greatly, therefore Saul took his own sword and he fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell upon his sword and he died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled and the Philistines came and they lived in them. Verse eight, the next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Goboa. So they cut off his head. And they stripped off his armor. And sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news that the house of the idols to the people to, to the good news to the house to, of their idols and to the people. They put the armor in the temple of Ashtoreth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Besham. Church, that's how the book of 1 Samuel ends. <laughs> Sobering reality. Saul, think about this. Saul the man that the nation of Israel desired. That's who they wanted to be their king. They wanted Saul. He was the man. He doesn't defeat the Philistines in the end. Instead, what happens? He loses ground to them, and the Philistines begin to live in the Israelite cities. Church, Saul's last act as king is to watch his own sons die. And then he commits suicide himself. And his enemy hangs his body on the wall in the city in shame until the birds come around and pick away his flesh. It is impossible for the Bible to paint a more devastating end to a life. Unreal. And what's really ironic, watch this. All of this that happened is in the same geographic place where Saul was crowned king. Do you know that? The location where Saul was killed and hung up on the wall was within an eye shot of where he was crowned king of Israel. A truly devastating end to Israel's sought-after king. Now, understandably, I don't want to close the service like this. And so the question becomes, what do we learn from all this? As you reflect on Saul's life, as we as a church reflect on the book of 1 Samuel, what do we learn from Saul's life? Well, we could sit here for another half hour, an hour, two hours, and I could tell you all kinds of things that you learn from Saul's life. We could go through the whole thing again, but here's one thing that you can walk out of here with, and that's this, point number three. Saul looked for answers in all the wrong places. He looked for his answers in all the wrong places. You see, Saul's problem from the very beginning, it was never the Philistine's. His problem was never Goliath. His problem was never the fact that David was going to overtake him as king. You know what Saul's problem was? Saul's problem was Saul. That was his problem. See, Saul never truly trusted in God. God could have conquered all of Saul's enemies. He could have blessed Saul's life in an abundant way, but instead of trusting in God, he trusted in himself. Saul never truly delighted in the Lord. He delighted in himself. Church, what do you delight in? What is it that you delight in in life? My friend Saul knew who God was. He knew all about God. He knew that he should call out to God when he was in a pickle, when he was in a jam, when he was going through a difficulty. He knew about God. But his main problem was that he didn't fully surrender and repent to God. You see, as we reflect back over the whole book of 1 Samuel, the reality is all of us have something or someone that we look to for happiness, for security, and for satisfaction in this life. And whatever or whoever that thing is, that's what we become a slave of, right? For Saul, that thing was himself. It was himself. He constantly worried about what everyone else thought, which meant the Lord of Saul's life wasn't the Lord. The Lord of Saul's life was Saul. And because of this, Saul cher- chose, to ch- chose to live and to serve himself instead of choosing to serve and live for God. And so my question to you as we close this morning is simple. Who is it that you are living for? Who is your king? What is your king right now? Are you living like Saul Are you desiring something from this world that will bring you happiness and joy and security and satisfaction? Or is your desire to simply just know Jesus, to know him? Because he is the only one who can ever truly, fully, and finally satisfy your life. Church, we all have to choose a king. That's what this book has taught me so many times over. We have to choose a king. In fact, all of us have already chosen a king. So my question for you as we wrap this book up is who or what have you chosen to be your king? Something from this world? Is it yourself or is it Jesus Christ, God Almighty? This morning, I offer you the chance to make the choice that Saul did not make. And that's the choice to trust in God as your true king. And I want to give you the opportunity to make that choice right now as we wrap up in prayer. Let's all bow our heads, everybody pray. And Father, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your word to us today. We thank you that while we saw a gruesome ending to a king's life, we can also look ahead to 2 Samuel. I know that there's another king waiting in the shadows who's going to be a much better representative for the people of Israel. And Father, ultimately, years and years later, there's going to be another king who's going to arise and he's going to come on a rescue mission from heaven, and he's going to live the perfect, sinless life. And he's going to go to the cross and die in every single one of our place, and his name is Jesus. And so today, we rejoice and we praise you for sending your son, and we praise you, Jesus, for giving your life on the cross for each and every one of us. Father, I pray for the individuals in this room right now who are right now turning to things that are other than you turning to things for assurance, whether it's money, whether it's uh, people, whether it's uh, status, whatever it may be, turning to things that are not you for assurance. May they stop doing that right now and instead repent of that. Turn to 360 and to begin to trust in you for health, for security, for safety, and for satisfaction. Father, I pray a prayer of repentance, that we would repent, unlike Saul who had so many opportunities through his life to simply repent Would we repent of any area right now that is unconfessed sin in our life, any area right now that is in rebellion to you? Father, would we not just sweep it under a rug or shove it into a closet so that nobody can see it, but would we bring it before you this morning and truly repent of it so that you can wash us clean and make us whiter than snow? Church, may we confess these things right now. Father, I pray that our congregation would be a congregation that's not just about knowing about you, but it's a congregation that is just simply in love with you. A congregation that just wants to know you in a deeper way, have a better understanding of who you are. I pray that we wouldn't just seek you when we're in a jam, but Father, that we would seek you every single day. May we recognize that a relationship with you is not just about going and doing a bunch of stuff to try to earn our salvation, It's not about trying to get things just from you. But instead, may we understand that the foundation of Christianity is about knowing what you have done for us on the cross. It's about knowing how you feel about every single one of us. And then when we understand that, surrendering every part of our life to you. And so with that in mind, Jesus, I pray right now for the individuals that maybe are in this room right now that don't know you, maybe haven't surrendered areas of their life to you. Maybe they have in the past, but the reality is they're not living that, that way right now, and so they need to come back to you. Father, I pray that right now, through the power of your Spirit, you'll convict them of your sin, that, you'll, that you will show them their need for you. And I pray that they will come to you right now with open arms and confess that you are Lord and you are Savior. So, Father, we thank you once again for our time together this morning, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.